Again, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3, actually to verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have given us much. You have given us many pointers. You've given us much encouragement. You've given us much sensory of what we need to have our minds and our hearts focused on, which is Jesus Christ. So we hope that today, that through our worship and now into our consideration of this passage, that you would draw all of those senses to the blood of Jesus Christ and the redemption that comes from him. We beg this and we ask your mercy in this. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As you may notice from last week, I'm repeating a lot of the same passages over and over again. We're going to be going through these verses Um, For the next couple of weeks and then moving on into the rest of chapter 9, hopefully we'll finish up chapter 9 this particular month. But I wanted to slow down and go through these particular increments or or incrementally through these particular sections of the passage because I think that it is easy for us to become kind of overwhelmed by all the different things that are being highlighted. And even the writer to the Hebrews here says that I, I can't speak about these all in detail Because I think he would go off on different tracks from where he was wanting to go. Since this is actually preaching the passage, I get the opportunity to maybe take some of those tracks so that we could listen and think about those particular images that we're getting throughout this passage so that we may be able to magnify what the writer of the Hebrews is wanting us to see when we get to that very last part of the passage that I read, which is that Jesus is securing an eternal redemption. There's an Expedia commercial out 
right now that I saw recently that I thought was pretty cool. And it starts out with a, a little boy and he's in a bathtub. You may have seen it. And he, uh, he's just laying there in the water and he sinks down and goes under the water. And then I think he gets up and he asks his dad who is shaving. He says, uh, what is the ocean like? Obviously, this little boy has never been to the ocean. And you can tell that he's contemplating about the beach. You can tell very clearly that he's thinking about it. He's laying on the floor and he looks and he looks at the curtains as the wind is kind of blowing the curtain and you can hear waves in the background and he's trying to imagine what it would be like to see waves and he runs his hand across the carpet and he's trying to imagine what the what sand may look like. He's seen pictures and he knows that there's water, he knows that there's waves, he knows that there's sand and he asked his dad, he said, is there, are, there, are there animals in the water? And he's asking all these questions and he's imagining intently in his mind, what is the beach like? And his dad, who knows what the beach is like, is, is answering his questions, affirming that there are animals there. And, and in the whole time, in the back of his mind is, I want to get my son to the beach. And you kind of can tell that through the commercial that um, there must be some kind of heritage in Jamaica because he's watching his his Expedia app tell him that there's a really good deal now on plane tickets to Jamaica. And he's excited that he's going to be able to take his son finally to Jamaica, probably his homeland, and to be able to take him to the beach that he's been imagining. Well, here in these particular little increments of these images of what we've had in the Old Testament, what we had in the tabernacle, God is wanting to take his people to where he's going to take them. And for a long time, they were left with just maybe the bathtub water or left with just the curtain and left with the carpet and having to ask questions of where, what is it like when you get there? What is it like when you get to this, this homeland? And so as we go back and we are already those who know what the homeland is and we know who the master is and we know who Jesus is, it's the same kind of thing for us to take a moment and almost be like that little child. Because when you watch the commercial, you can make yourself kind of imagine what it would have been like to try to imagine that. And, the, and it would intensify the experience, even though knowing that the beach is better than the bathtub that the beach is better than the carpet, but that at the same time we get to experience and maybe magnify our hope of where we are going. Because this passage is ultimately, this whole book of Hebrews is to encourage Jewish Christians who are suffering persecution to have a hope for what is to come, to remember where they have been and now we're the, what has been revealed, and as they continue to go through this particular wilderness of this age, to have that longing, to have that hope, and to have that same posture, to put themselves very similar in the same posture that those of old were called to be in, as they look forward to the final completion, to the final arrival of their destination, and so we have here again the reminder of those three particular things. And I know I've mentioned this every Sunday, but after we finish Hebrews, I hope that it is very much emblazoned on your mind. The three points of Hebrews, which is that God is calling us to strive to enter into his rest. The ultimate destination is the rest of God. He is the one doing the work. 
And so we are called to strive to enter in to his rest by holding on to his work. We are also able to hold on to his rest. And we hold on to the confession and we hold on to the things that have been promised. We are holding on to the things that have been proclaimed about what allows us to be able to have access to that rest. And then thirdly, we are called to draw near that the ultimate goal, the ultimate destination of us entering into that rest is that we are in fellowship with God. That has been his desire from the very beginning when he created us is that he would be in fellowship with us. And so therefore that should be our hope. And Hebrews is there to encourage us to be as in, it is said in chapter 6 verse 12 that we would be imitators of those that were before us. And those who are with us now, those who are ultimately Christ who is before us, that through faith and patience that we will get to inherit the promises, that we would be able to enjoy that destination. And so here in Hebrews, we are going to go now from the holy place to the most holy place. And the first thing that we have presented before us is the golden altar of incense. Now, this is interesting because the writer to the Hebrews almost seems immediately in error. Because if you go back and you read Exodus, you will see that the altar of incense is actually in the holy place. It's in the first section, not in the second section. And so here is a description as it's talking about the most holy place. It mentions the first piece of furniture is actually the altar of of incense. And so many people can immediately say, well, wait a minute. Is he confused? Is he wrong? Well, you have to remember what goes on. If you go back and you read Exodus, you'll see that the high priest takes the incense that is from the altar of incense and he brings it into the most holy place. And also the incense that is outside of the most holy place is being burned and is going through the veil into the most holy place. And so there's a transition. There's a transition from this place where we have the lampstand and the table with the bread, the loaves of bread that we talked about last week. And then we have here actually the incense in the same place as the holy place. And the things that are there, the the smells and the aromas They're going through, the smoke is going through the veil and is penetrating into the place where God ultimately is making a symbol of where he dwells. So what are those particular incense burnings representing? Well, we know that it's prayer. We know that it's the prayers of God's people. We see in different places in Scripture, both in the Psalms and even all the way into Revelation, where the incense is like the prayers of God's people. And there's a very hopeful image there when you think about what is it like to be with God? Well, one of the ways that it's like to be with God is to actually talk with God. That this God, this great creator, this wonderful, magnificent Lord, is one who delights, it even says, that he delights in the incense, in the prayers of God's people, that God actually likes to listen to us. If you take a moment, 
all of you all, I'm certain of this, that you have been in conversations with people that you wish you weren't in. <laughs> you have been in conversations with people where you're like, I don't want to listen to this conversation much longer. And many of you may feel that way sometimes when I'm preaching. <laughs> it's like I'm ready for this conversation to come to an end. But God says that he is the kind of God that he delights in hearing prayers. Now we know that also from Scripture that there are things that come out of our mouths that God does not delight in. And so we know that God delights in a certain kinds of conversations. And those conversations are the kind of conversations that we should hope in. We also see, I'm going to come back and talk a little bit more about the incense and about the prayers of the people. But we're going to go to the next thing. And the next thing was, after the golden altar of incense, is the Ark of the Covenant, which is covered on all sides with gold. Now, the Ark of the Covenant here is kind of the centerpiece. We know that where we have the Ark of the Covenant, and then we have the mercy seat, and we have the cherubim, and we know that there is where God's presence is residing, and it's sitting on top of his testimony. We often see in the Old Testament scriptures where it's talking about the testimony, even when you see the description of the altar of incense, that it's before the testimony of God. And so we know that his word is his testimony And so I'm not going to talk a lot about the Ark of the Covenant because we've talked about that a lot before. And we know that it is a a huge component of what is going on in the most holy place. But I want to today I want to talk about two particular pieces of furniture. And that's one, the altar of incense. But then also, well, actually three. I'm sorry, what's inside of that, uh, that Ark of the Covenant, along with the tablets of the covenant, are also the golden urn holding the manna. And Aaron's staff that budded. So as we think about the prayers going in through the veil, and then here we have the Ark of the Covenant, the three particular things that are mentioned that are inside of the Ark of the Covenant are the tablets of the covenant, which we know is the law. And then we have these two other pieces, which is the bowl with the manna in it. And then we have this very interesting piece, which is Aaron's staff that budded. And then we know that this is what God's presence is sitting on top of. And then he's put these things there to remind us of things past and also things to come. I want to get to the one that I think that really captivated my mind most quickly. When I was going through this passage and I hadn't been reading, even though I had been preparing for this particular part, I hadn't taken the time to really study it as thoroughly as I would have liked. But how many people can right off the top of our head, I don't want you to tell me what, what it is, but how many people know the story that involves Aaron's staff that budded? Raise of hand. Does anybody remember in the scriptures Aaron's staff that blossomed? Almond blossoms? Well, there's one in the back. Very good. <laughs> well, a couple over here. Okay, good. Everybody's... Some people are waiting, like, I don't want to be the only one raising my hand. So there's a few of you. Now, I can understand that because I couldn't remember all the details. I could remember it being referenced, but I was thinking, that's a pretty cool thing. If if I had a staff, if I had a piece of wood, if I said, Jim, go out there and bring me a big old stick, and we're going to set this stick here, just go find one that's been laying around out there, and I set it here, and it budded awesome blom- and, uh, almond blossoms, you all would be pretty impressed with that. Raise your hand if you would not be impressed with that. 
I would not anticipate that anyone would not be tremendously impressed by that. And it kind of dumbfounded me that I felt like, you know, I don't know if people really think about this particular piece, this particular item. And it's one of the most amazing items. You would think that all of us would just be drawn to the whole idea of this staff budding. Well, here we have inside of the Ark of the Covenant, this thing that was meant and purposely put there to remind God's people about something that's about God and about something about where we are going with God. And I would say that many in the church don't even think about it. I would think that these particular people that the writer of the Hebrews was writing to probably did remember it. And I think it's something that we should remember it. And so therefore, I do want to take the time to speak a little bit more in detail about that. And so the first question might come to mind when you think about a staff, Aaron's staff, a piece of wood that bloomed awesome, awesome almonds, (laughs) almond blossoms. You would think, why almonds? What's the significance of almonds? Now, this is a little bit of a challenging thing to answer because there is no specific commentary that highlights in the scriptures from the scriptures itself saying that the the almond blossoms mean this particular thing. But we do know that going into the most holy place, that in the holy place where the the lampstand, it was described when you create and you design the lampstand. If you remember, there were seven lights that it was to be like a tree and that the things that hold the candles or the oil rather are to look like almond blossoms. And so we know that it was described again. It's highlighted that we have that this light, this light that is shining purposely upon the table of God's provision of bread is again to remind us of almonds and almond blossoms. But I want us to go through a passage in Jeremiah. And if you have your Bibles, we can quickly go here. I'm not going to be in there very long. In Jeremiah chapter 1. And this is a conversation that Jeremiah was having with, with God in verses 11 through 12. And it said, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. This is probably the closest thing that we have of some kind of connection of of a commentary of, of what is being highlighted here. There are a lot of things I think that God is teaching us and telling us by having an almond branch. And I'll go more into that in more detail in a few minutes. But the thing that I think that we would want to first think about is what do you see? What do you see that God is teaching us here? And I think a lot of us, when we read passages like this, especially if we haven't been deep students of the Old Testament, we don't really see much. We just, we, these images are almost too overwhelming to us. But we really need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, what do we see here? And we have Jeremiah saying, I see an almond branch. And then we see that the Lord is making a commentary, and it's even a little bit of a play on the words because this, this word that is being tra- these words are being translated almond branch, they sound like the word watch. And there's, so we have both an encouragement that it says here that God has been watching over his word to perform it, but we also know that we are being told to watch, to look, to observe. So when we 
Think about the almond blossom, blossom and almonds fruit coming from the branch. When we think about the almond blossoms of the lampstand, the idea is to watch, to see, to know that God sees what he is doing and he is watching over his word being performed, but that we are to be also watching how he is going to perform the fulfillment of his word. And remember where this staff is. It's inside of the Ark of the Covenant, right next to his testimony. And it's an indication to us to watch. We already were given that as we were going into the holy place before we get to the most holy place. That the very lampstand, which we learned last week, is Jesus Christ himself shining light onto the bread that's on the table, which is Jesus Christ himself. That we are to watch, that we are to observe, that we are to be intent on watching what God is doing. So rewinding a little bit and going back and doing the whole pace back in through the veils, we think about the altar of incense and the prayers going into the most holy place. And then as we see there before us the Ark of the Covenant, we see the mercy seat and we're there in the presence of God. I want us to remember three particular things about this transition into the most holy place, this transition into the presence of God, three things, prayer, provision, and promise. That as we encounter these particular items inside of the most holy place, we see that we are entering into the presence of God by way of prayer. We see there in the manna a reminder of provision, And we see there in the staff, Aaron's staff that budded, we see promise. We see how God is going to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. And as I mentioned earlier, that the reason why the writer of the Hebrews is going through all of these particular things is that he's teaching us to be imitators, to be imitators of posture before God. So we have here an outline of how our posture before God in our particular journey now is we are journeying very much like in a wilderness where we are called to trust God, to hope in the promises. But we are also encountering difficulty. We, we encounter difficulty because of our own sins, because of the own condition of our own hearts. And we also encounter difficulty because of the sins of others. And because of the persecution that is in the world today, some more intently than others. Sometimes it's a persecution of culture because culture can allure us and distract us. And we have to fight against that particular culture to distract us away from God. So we are in a journey and we are called to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. We too are to put ourselves in this posture of prayer Remembering God's provision and hoping and holding on to his promise. So let's think about prayer a bit. I want to highlight that this incense is very much to be synonymous with prayer. If we go to Psalm 14, you don't have to do this now. I'm just going to go quickly here. Verses, excuse me, 141 rather. Psalm 141, verses 1 through 2. It says, O Lord, I call upon you. This is David calling upon the Lord. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you in the lifting up of my hands as evening sacrifice. 
And we see here that, that we see that there, how there, it is a synonymous element of prayer, but that we know that there are things that can come out of our mouth that the Lord does not desire to listen to. But he is asking that his prayers would be counted as incense before God, that his prayers would be a delight to God. So we see that in John chapter 16, we have here the answer to how our prayers are certainly to be heard by God. So if we want our prayers to be heard by God and to be a delight to the Father, they have to be certain kind of prayers. John 16, verse 22 through 28. It says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, meaning of the day of Jesus' crucifixion, You will ask of nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. We have Jesus here telling us before his crucifixion and before his resurrection, he tells us something very astounding. He is telling us, That if you ask of the Father in my name, I will give it to you. I will answer that prayer affirmatively. He is telling us that in his name is the way that our prayers, like incense, can enter not only into the presence of the Father, but receive the very response of the Father that is affirmative, yes, that he will accomplish it. I think that's astounding, brothers and sisters, that the Lord would answer our prayers with yes if we do it in his name. Now, I think it's a journey to learn how to pray in Jesus' name. I think that we can be reminded that when we go into that place that God is showing us that his promises are going to be connected to his testimonies, to his word. And we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that testimony and of his word. And so we know that only the things that Jesus proclaims, the things that God's word proclaims, are the things that can be in his name. So the reason why it's a journey is because we don't know all of God's word by heart. At least I don't. We are constantly students and disciples of God's word, learning what God's word is so that we can know how to actually pray in his name. It's not like it's some kind of some kind of magic thing to say when you say in Jesus name that it automatically makes it so. I mean, if it was, then I would have said, you know, in Jesus name, let's get this building done in one day instead of the whole winter like we took in most of spring. To get this building completed. It's not, it's not going to be hocus pocus. It's things that are going to be associated with 
His Word. But the amazing thing is that as we learn His Word, as we learn His testimonies, as we learn how to pray and learn how to have our prayers like the incense go and be pleasing before the Lord, check out the promises that God tells us in Revelation about the response of those kind of prayers. First, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, it says, When he had taken the scroll, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, your ransom people for God, every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God that they shall reign on the earth. Here we have this worship service before the Lord where these golden bowls full of incense are the prayers of God's saints. And we know that they are before the Lord. And this is a promise for us that our prayers are going to be before the Lord based upon this lamb that was slain and his blood who was once and for all given a ransom for God's people. Then flip over to Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When the land opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about an hour, half an hour, excuse me. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God. And seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then catch this. Then the angels took the censer. And filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were pills of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. We see here that in the end, we see that the angels are the ones who are holding this, this, this censer that has incense in it. And it's taking all of these prayers. And the angel flings it with fire upon the earth. And brings about a fulfillment of the very prayers of God's people. So not only do we have this great privilege in knowing that our prayers are have penetrated through now the veil that has been rent when Christ was crucified. There is a wide open access for our prayers to be before the Lord because Jesus has taken our prayers into the most holy place. Not only do we know that he hears us and that Jesus has accomplished our access to be able to have our prayers before him, we are being told that there will be here a fiery response answering our very prayers. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's saying that when you ask in my name, it will be performed. So when you are in this journey in your wilderness and you are in the word of God, and you are praying. Now think about it. Just take a moment now and think about things that you have been praying for that you haven't gotten an answer for yet. Things that you wonder if the Lord is silent. Well, let's look at that Revelation passage again. It says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. We know that there are times of silence. 
Here we are even given this. I mean, it's interesting. You've got to imagine John being here and getting this vision. And he stood there for half an hour. And then there was activity. Now, we know that these things represent different things. And so there's sometimes there's just silence. And so on one hand, as you are praying, be encouraged to know that God answers in his own good time. Sometimes there is silence before the Father and before us. But we are being encouraged here to know God will act. Now, it might cause you to go back and say, are my prayers truly in Jesus' name? Are they consistent with his promises? Are you asking like we read earlier this morning where Joshua was saying, what do you want me to do, God? Or are we telling God, do this for me? Are our prayers in our own name, ultimately? That we want God to answer for our own kingdom? Or are we tied and bound to the promises that God has been providing for us? John Calvin comments that the altar of incense was purified by the sprinkling of blood that they might learn that their prayers obtained acceptance through sacrifices. You must remember that our prayers have to be in Jesus' name. Our prayers have to be in the blood of Jesus, in the work of Jesus. This is why when we are given warnings about our prayers, that if we are those who are still bound in wickedness, if we are those who are not desiring to repent, if we are those who are not willing to listen to the law of God so that our hearts may be rent, that we cannot be going to God and expecting Him to answer our prayers that are not based upon the gospel, that are not based upon repentance and faith, that are not based upon the fact that we need a Savior who died on a cross. That is why we cannot be content with unrepentant sin. Now, it's not saying that if you discover that you have sinned or that you find things in your heart and you're like, oh, I am, I am a wretched sinner, Lord. I can't believe that this week that these things have been in my heart and my mind. Please forgive me. It's not saying that if you have committed sin that you cannot be hurt. It's saying that you have to go through the blood of Jesus Christ to have this incense of prayers being heard by God. Let's move on to the manna a little bit. Most of you can remember the story of manna. Most of you remember when God gave his people manna. When you think about manna, do you think about positive things or do you think about negative things? If you were of Israel, I think the answer would be yes to both. You would think about the story of manna. You would think about how God fed and provided. But what happened? As they were getting the manna, how did, people, how did God's people respond to receiving bread from heaven? They complained. And then that becomes the kind of conversations that the Lord does not delight in. He does not delight in when we complain against his provision. Now there are things that we have that are complaints before God. We can bring our petitions before God, or we can even say, God, your word must be true. 
So therefore, you must do these things. Or Lord, we don't see your promises being fulfilled a certain way, so we're asking you to please show us the fulfillment of your promises. But when we're complaining about provision, we know that the Lord does not delight in that kind of discussion. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, after complaining to God, it says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. All they could think about were the things that delighted them when they were actually in captivity. Now you might be thinking, wow, that actually sounds pretty good right now. It's 12 o'clock. It's lunchtime. Fish, garlic, fish with onions and cucumbers and melons. That all sounds wonderful. Not really interested in just the bread that's before us. This is to remind us what it's like that God gives us this provision. There will be this temptation to say, God, we're tired of looking at your provision. If you follow the rest of that story, you will be reminded that they said, we won't meet. We won't meet. We won't meet. And then I mean, uh, Moses comes to God and he's like, these aren't my children. You know, I didn't bear them. Why do I have to put up with this? And he's bringing his complaint before God. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm in a wretched place right now having to listen to these people keep chanting about meat. And then God says, okay. He did respond to their prayers. And he responded to such a way, he says, I'll give them meat. And it says that I'll give you so much meat that it will come out your nose. And God gives us some pretty interesting images to think about. You know, we, we sometimes when we think about theology, we think it's you know, can sometimes be too heady. I mean, that's pretty simple. He's like, you're going to get sick of what you're going to get. That we have to be careful for the things that we have to ask for. That when we're coming and complaining against God when he has given us blessed provision, that sometimes he will respond in certain ways that will remind us not to complain. And so when we look at the manna, we have often, we see both sides of the story. We see where there was this negative component of our sin, or their sin, which we are associating our own sins to. But then we're being reminded that God did provide provision. So as you are praying to God and traveling through this wilderness, as you sometimes are dealing with seasons of silence, do not forget the times where he is not silent. I think about that as an elder in this church that God gave us very quick answers to our prayers back in October. And here we are. In less than a year, God has given us the direction of the ministry. He changed the direction of our ministry after we prayed. He didn't have to answer it that quickly. He didn't have to answer it this way. But in his goodwill, he did. But there are many prayers that I've been praying that I have not seen the answers to. We have to remember that God has not forgotten about those prayers. And he has provided for us things during that journey that Jesus says is like him. 
He says that I am the bread. That it wasn't Moses that provided you the manna in heaven. That it was God. And so therefore we should not complain. We are to remember that. And then to remember the budding staff. This is what I'm leading up to. Now this is a really cool story. Now I'll encourage you to go back and read Numbers chapter 11. I'll remind you this in the worship notes email. And that will talk about the story of the manna. But I encourage you to also read number 16 and 17, which will lead up and talk about the budding staff that Aaron has. And again, this particular story is in the same kind of context. There is complaining. But the complaining is not just about provision of food. It is the provision of leadership. The provision of the leadership in the priesthood of Aaron. Here we have the story in chapter 16 of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Does anybody remember those names? Because you should remember those names. You need to remember the names of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And what happened here with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? They were upset with the leadership and they felt that they and others could be like the high priest. Not just priests that would go into the holy place, but the most holy place. And they were saying that all of us should be able to do this. In Numbers chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, it says, They assembled themselves together with Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he said to Korah and all the company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and he will bring near to him, and the one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. We have here a rebellion. Not just a rebellion of provision, but now a rebellion of of leadership. We must remember that it was God that instituted who the high priest would come from. That it wasn't Moses and it wasn't Aaron. And we know that Aaron isn't some great guy because we see his weaknesses. The Lord has recorded it. We see that where Aaron in the very beginning was already leading people astray by how he went with the complaints of the people and created the golden calf. We see later on where we see Aaron and Miriam having their own little micro-rebellion against God. We know that it is God that is the one who chooses the leadership. It is God who chooses our access to him. And it says that it is God who will choose who will be drawn near to him. They assembled together, not only of those three, but it represented 250 of people who had a good reputation amongst Israel. And who had a good reputation amongst them as being leaders. And they had their own censors. And they wanted to bring their censers into the, old, into the holy, most holy place. And they wanted to be the high priest. Now we think about this in today's age in the church. That there are tons of people who have a good reputation amongst God's people. Who are wanting to choose a different path in entering into the presence of the Lord. We can see it now with with internet. We can find out about what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. We can find out what's going on in the PCA. We can find out in any denomination. We can go down the street and we can see how what used to be the United Methodist Church down the street here is now got the UMC marked out. And you can go and read about how there's 
this fighting and this, there's a discussion about what does God desire for us to be and for us to do as God's people, and there's fighting. And there are those who are going to be aligned with God's word, and there's going to be those who are going to be aligned with their own opinions. That's what it boils down to. And that's what we have here. We have people who are saying, hey, we are all holy. We're all able to do this. And so we want to be what brings access for God's people into the presence of the most holy. If you know the story, you know that the ground opened up and swallowed all that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram had, them and all of their families and everything that they owned, and closed back up. You also know that the 250 that were also wanting to be the ones who basically are in charge over God, that were also destroyed. And then after that, do you, do you think that the story that everybody said, okay, God, we get it. We understand. We're down with it. We understand what you're saying now. We were, we were asleep and we weren't paying attention, but now we're paying attention. No, they complained some more. They were saying, Moses, what are you doing? You're taking us out here to get killed? This is horrible. And then all of a sudden, they started dying. A plague came in. And the amazing thing is, is that Moses calls Aaron and he says, Aaron, go out there amongst the people with your censer, the one that God gave you and appointed to you to use, and go before the Lord and make petition before the Lord. There was already 14,700 people slaughtered because of their rebellion. But... It shows us a picture that God has his way of doing what he wants done so we can have access to him. That is his authority. And then right after that story, God, everyone's now listening. And Moses says, or God tells Moses, give a staff to every one of the tribes, a wooden staff. And in the morning, the staff that buds is going to be the one that I am choosing. He's basically just reminding them what he's already said of how I'm going to go about dealing with my priesthood. And it was Aaron's staff that budded and blossomed almond blossoms and bore forth almonds. We have a story that is very daunting of God's judgment against God's people, but we also see here not only is God saying through this authority... I will bring about and draw my people to myself. But also inside of that staff, we have the promise that something that is dead will be raised. We have the promise of resurrection in that budding staff. This budding staff showing forth not only life, but light and fruitfulness. We see that in God's ways, in this representation, we have his authority we have his resurrection, and we also have his fruit that will not only nourish us on this earth, but will nourish us for eternal life. Brothers and sisters, what we have here is the model of our posture before God in this particular day and age. We need to go back and ask ourselves what do we pray or what do we complain? In the story of Korah. Dathan and Abiram, it says before that that he heard the complaints of the people. 
and he was burning with fire. They weren't complaining directly to him, but they were complaining before him. Think about your complaints. Think about your prayers in contrast to your complaints. What do you complain about? Do you complain about the fact that you're not adhering perfectly to the word? There is grace there, but that would be an okay thing to pray about or complain about. Lord, I keep disobeying. Lord, your people are shameful. That would be something to complain about. But what do we complain about in light of what we pray about? Secondly, what do you crave? What do you crave in your heart? What do you hunger for? Think about what they were craving for. They were craving for things that were given to those who were in captivity. Are your cravings consistent with the cravings of those who are captive to sin? Who are not people of liberty? Or do you hunger and thirst for righteousness that is based upon Jesus Christ? And then lastly, as you see that staff, are you grumbling and complaining that the staff did not fall upon your own home, that the staff did not fall upon your own ways and your own path? Or are you looking at the staff and the provision of God and His priesthood as being the very thing that you hope in because you hope in the authority of Jesus Christ? That you hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that you hope in the fruitful response of Jesus Christ. What is it that you hope for? It should be very tightly connected to what you're craving. It will probably be very tightly connected to what you're complaining. But if we hear this word and God pricks our heart and changes our heart, that we too would use as an example of this, this faithful posture that we would in Jesus' name, according to Jesus' testimony, go before him, We know that our prayers and even our complaints can be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can know that the power of Jesus is that he is not leaving us to be alone, that he has brought a comforter to us. He has brought one who is going to bring conviction to us and who is going to bring light to our path that we will hunger and crave for righteousness. And then we will understand what our hope really is and we will know that our hope will be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly